As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Season 5 of the Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom, where we talk with enterprise and technology platform leaders about the people, processes, and platforms that make marketing and customer experience successful, scalable, and sustainable. This is what creates an Agile brand. I'm your host, Greg Kilstrom, advisor and consultant for Fortune 1000 marketing and CX leaders and teams as principal and chief strategist at GK5A and best-selling author, keynote speaker, entrepreneur, and Agile certified coach. The Agile Brand Podcast is brought to you by Tech Systems, an industry leader in full-stack technology services, talent services, and real-world application. For more information, go to teksystems.com. To sign up for the Agile Brand newsletter and get the latest insights and articles on marketing technology and CX, or to purchase a copy of my latest book, House of the Customer, go to gregkillstrom.com. You can also find all my books on Amazon and other retailers. And now on to the show. For over 25 years, since the advent of Microsoft Internet Explorer version 2, Brands and marketers have been relying on browser cookies for many things, including the now $477 billion global digital advertising industry, which is expected to grow to $786 billion by 2026. Many events have transpired over the last several years, most notably an increased shift in concerns over consumer data privacy that have already blocked third-party cookies on some browsers, such as Apple's Safari and Mozilla's Firefox, And the final step will be when Google bans them, currently scheduled for sometime in 2024. Leading customer data platform Lytics recently released a white paper called Life After the Third-Party Cookie, which discusses what a world post-third-party cookies looks like for, for both marketers and their customers. Today, we're going to talk about life beyond the era of the third-party cookie and what it means for both marketers and the customer experience. And to help me discuss this topic, I'd like to welcome Yasha Kekis-Wolf, President at Lytics. Uh, Yasha, welcome to the show. Hey, uh, I appreciate being here, Greg. Thank you for having me. And there's nothing like a late afternoon chat about cookies, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I got my coffee here to, to a company. So. <laughs> um, so yeah, first, why don't we get started by you giving a little background on yourself and a little bit about Lytics. Well, one, I, I really do appreciate being here. Um, I like the podcast a lot. I've had a chance to listen oh, to a you. few of them. And I, I podcast myself, so I appreciate all the work that goes into it. Yeah, um, right. you, you introduced me. Um, I'm, I feel super privileged to be a part of the Lytics team. I've spent about the last 25 years um, in the technology space running go-to-market teams. So I started off in kind of my early years at Yahoo and spent many years at Microsoft and um, uh, in the startup community for a long time and uh, about three years ago joined Lytics. But I'll tell you, kind of my journey here came 
really because I've been very intentional about trying to do something while I've been a part of every organization that I've been a part of. And that's get to know who my customers were and do that by focusing on really two key things. Let's call them threads that I've been tugging on over the years. And one of them has been kind of working with the teams I've been a part of to, let's call it, improve the processes that we've been using. Kind of early on, I introduced this concept of lead into marketing organizations in the early aughts, um, kind of introduced a concept called agile marketing. Um, and I've pulled on that over the years to help teams work more quickly that can better respond to things that customers wanted. And on the flip side, invested heavily in technologies and infrastructure to help organizations scale to the size that they really deserve to be able to scale to. And over the years, I've been able to explore different kinds of technologies that help businesses better understand who their customers are. That has ultimately led me to find this organization, Lytix. I worked with Lytix as a buyer, worked in Lytix as a user, and three years ago had the privilege to join as our president, which is really the the co-lead of the company with our founder, um, responsible for all of our day-to-day operations. And I'll tell you that it's been really exciting over the last three years being a part of a company like Lytics in the CPP space, because at Lytics, we do some pretty interesting and unique things that give us a lot of perspective about the conversation we're going to have today. We're pretty unique in our category. For those that don't know the CDP space, every CDP does kind of three things, or really needs to do three things. They help organizations build out capabilities to collect information from their users, from the prospects, from the customers, whatever the vernacular is that you use. And that's really zero-party zero and first-party data. Organize that data into an identity and build that identity into a schema, uh, first-party data and zero-party data into a schema. The second is that when the data is organized into an identity, that capability around managing that identity and schema, the third is that they help them take action on it, bring it into locations where they can help delight a customer experience by personalizing it or organizing it into a better, uh, uh, let's call it segment, so that you can drive better actions on behalf of the business that you're part of. Lytics does something that's really unique. Um, we operate in real time in all of the channels that we work in. We are built completely and totally inside of Google's cloud in the stack, which gives us a really unique vantage points and being able to deliver our product in a very specialized way. We're actually able to not just deliver in a multi-tenant SaaS environment, which a lot of software does, but we can actually deliver our product directly into our customers' uh, GCP projects. So think about the uh, VPC projects of old, if, if you've been in software for a long time, yeah. we actually deliver our product very uniquely in that way, which is incredibly important as we think about the protection of customer data. As we navigate through the world of GDPR and CCPA and Scrum 2 and all of the changes and regulations that we foresee uh, well off into the future. So it's a, I've got a long history in technology, a long history in working with customers and customer data. And it's a real privilege to be part of such a kind of vanguard organization in the customer data space. So it's a, again, I'm excited about the conversation today. And it's a little bit about my background, and a little bit about Linux. Wonderful. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for that background. So yeah, we're here to talk about the, the evolution of the marketing and technology world beyond reliance on third party cookies, while still targeting and communicating with our customers. So since we have a, a large audience of senior marketers and CMOs who listen to this show, let's, let's start by looking at it from their perspective. So the Lytics report that I mentioned at the top of the show surveyed over 250 senior marketers and found that nearly 50% of them anticipate a large financial impact on marketing ROI as a result of the end of third-party cookies. Can you talk about the concern here and you know why this is such a critical issue to understand? 
Yeah. Well, Ray, you and I have been around the marketing world for a long time. And you know, there, there's one thing that we've all been doing for all of the years that we've been in marketing, and that's creating briefs to go out and attract new customers by building campaigns. And the briefs yeah. that we've been building kind of come up with this idea of what we think our ideal customer is. We say, all right, we're going to go find more Gregs. Uh, Greg lives outside of the DC area and Greg is in this demographic profile and he's in this graphic profile and he makes, he's in this income profile. And then um, we ship that over to our agency and our agency goes out and they buy media against it. And the way that they buy media against it is by going out into different advertising networks, um, providing this information. And those advertising networks use cookie information and really third-party cookie information to try and glean what the right potential audiences are to be able to find groups of people who might fit into that ideal customer profile. Yeah. We've been doing this for years and years and years and years. And the, the kind of fear that most marketers have is that as the third-party cookie starts to go away, this tried and true method for going out and acquiring new customers by building this breed, going through this process that we did forever and ever and ever is going to start to go away or go away entirely. So there's a very real fear that many marketers have that the processes that we use to go out and acquire new customers is just going to go away. And sure. that's a pretty natural and I think it's a very real fear and a valid fear. Like, how do I adjust the processes that I have been using for years and years and years to be mindful about the growth of my business. So, I, you yeah. know, when when we went out and did this report and asked kind of all of these marketers and business leaders, um, this actually wasn't super surprising to me. Uh, maybe if there was one surprise in particular, it's that it wasn't more than 50%. Right. Yeah. You know, it, 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 you know, kind of remind me a little bit about the John Wanamaker thing. 50% of your stuff isn't working. You just don't know which half of it was. Right. I was like, how are 50% of marketers not acknowledging already that their processes probably don't need to change quite dramatically when third-party cookies are starting to go away? Yeah, yeah. Or they might not know that they need the change yet as, as much as they should, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, again, referencing the report, a, a majority, so you know, 62% of the respondents have indicated that you know because of these changes... They'd be increasing spending on some of the largest platforms. So places like Amazon or Meta, which, you know, of course, includes Facebook, Instagram and some others, as well as Google. Do you think this is a good approach for marketers and what should they pay attention to if they move in this direction? Well, I, my, my opinion is that it's, it's really a double edged sword. And I think this is the complexity here, right? Like when when these bigger networks continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger, yeah, there's a dynamic that shows up for us as marketers. One, we actually can be a lot more effective working in those channels, and we'll talk about that a little bit more as we start to talk about how to use first-party data and first-party data matching to be effective at creating look-like models and growing in those channels. One, like yes, if you're a marketer and you're smarter by using first-party data, looking at the big, you know, walled garden networks like Google and Meta and others, like absolutely, you should be doing that. But two. The other thing that happens is that as you become more and more effective at finding kind of the right ideal customer profile that you can go out and target lookalikes to, you know, your CPM starts to increase, your cost per acquisition starts to increase. Yeah. So, so it is a double-edged sword. Yes, it is a good idea. And you know, the 62% of respondents that have indicated that they're going to start to increase spending if they haven't already, like more are going to follow that. 62%, it's got to be 100% at some point, or at least it's right. going to be up to the 80% pretty quickly. <laughs> Um, you know, more people are going to yeah. spend more and more and more. Well, businesses have to spend more and more and more. But the double-edged sword is that we are going to start to see an increase in yield 
that those networks are going to see. So we have to be very planful about how do we be as effective as possible with our advertising dollars, knowing that the cost is going to increase in the channels because our efficacy based on the information that we have is also going to improve as well. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, you know, you touched on first party data. I wanted to talk about that. It's certainly something I've written plenty about as well. You know, this need for a, a robust first party data strategy. So those of you a little less familiar with that, you know, it's basically a, a plan so that the brand itself owns more data instead of third parties or even second parties um, in order to meaningfully respond to some of these changes. And, you know, the, that, the same report uh, I've mentioned earlier shows 92% of respondents agree that first party data is now more valuable than ever. What makes up a good first party data approach from a strategic perspective and, and what's reasonable to expect if the brand hasn't had a let's say a head start, like so there's many, many brands have, have been doing this and anticipating, but maybe some, some have not. So what, what's, what's reasonable to expect there? Yeah. I mean, I, we, we love to, I mean, it was a bit of a self-serving question. Like, <laughs> is it, we're not first party uh, data, robust first party data strategy. I mean, it's self-serving, right? Because like a, a, a critical part of a, a first party data strategy can be to employ a CDP to support yeah. you. So like that, that can be a short circuit for it. But, but if I take my kind of lytics and CDP hat off, like fundamentally what goes into a good first party data approach strategically are really three things. Like one, you have to have as a business, and if you're the business part of the business, not the technology part of the business, but if you're the business part of the business, a strategic approach to, to first-party data is first and foremost, you have to be very mindful about how you're going to ask for and collect first-party and zero-party data. So there are many, many, many techniques to collecting data and being able to do the second thing, which is storing and organizing it, but let's stay first on collecting data. So we as marketers and business leaders have been thinking about collecting data for the purpose of reporting on it over the course of the last couple of decades. And there are many great tools that are free, like GA4, et cetera, that are out there where we're dropping JavaScript tags and we're collecting data, okay. but we're using it for a kind of post-haste reporting on you know, this is what has happened on the assets that I on my websites, my mobile apps, et cetera. When, when we talk about a data strategy, we're really talking about bringing data into a location that it can be with me for a duration of time. Mm. So that really brings the second part of a kind of data strategy that's going to create have longevity and value for your business. So first, you have to be mindful about how you're collecting data and you're collecting data for the purpose of being able to store it so that you can have access to it over time. The, that kind of storage question that you have to answer for yourself is how are you going to keep it and where are you going to keep it? And I'll tell you that the one of the most fascinating statistics over the past few years is that we've seen one of the fastest growths in enterprises in software in particular that I think we've probably ever seen in any other type of software, very specifically with cloud data warehouses. I think this is a, a year ago statistic, but I think it like 2021, Gartner had said that 72% of businesses, nearly all size other than small businesses, would have at least one cloud data warehouse. This is like Azure or AWS or yeah. GCP or Snowflake or Databricks um, within their infrastructure. And, you know, over the course of 22, I've only, in my purview in our business at Lytics, seen that accelerate. So, you know, if you are a business and you're thinking about your data strategy, once you've started to collect data meaningfully, 
you're probably going to be storing it in some sort of a cloud data warehouse. You're going to do that for a bunch of different reasons because a lot of privacy and security that you're going to be mindful of, they're going to be able to help facilitate, organize, and manage through that. So collecting data in an an intentional way so that you're able to store it and get access to it. That second piece, when you're storing and getting access to it, again, we're talking about uh, keeping and holding data from a strategic perspective so that you've got a first-party data uh, strategy that you're able to build meaningful value from as a business. Once you get the data stored, you have to have it built into a meaningful schema that you can derive value from. So this is organized around a customer profile in particular. Um, the, the kind of third area of capabilities that you have to build again strategically is to be able to take that customer data schema and be able to put it into action. So big, building the capabilities to identify attributes of your customers, your prospects, like behaviors, build uh, segments or you know whatever the nomenclature is that you use inside of your business, yeah. uh, take those behaviors and the segments of people and introduce them into action tools, like being able to take segments of behaviors and bring them into advertising platforms, create better targeting lists or bring them into email systems and some notifications to customers who are likely to churn, right? Those are really the three capabilities that make up strategically a great, not just a good, but a great first-party data strategy. Of course, I would be remiss if I weren't to say that if you are working with a best-in-class CDP, a CDP should be, a best-in-class CDP should be enabling you in each of those capabilities. But really fundamentally, if you strip the CDP away, those are the capabilities that go into a great first-party data strategy. Before we continue, I'd like to introduce you to a sponsor of the show, Basecamp. Throughout my career, whether it was at my own agency or now as a consultant, Basecamp is what we rely on to help keep projects on track, on schedule, and on budget. It takes a straightforward approach to project management, it streamlines workflow management, and definitely keeps the team in the loop and on top of ongoing updates, which all are major components in a smooth running operation. No matter if it's a simple campaign or a multi-million dollar project, Basecamp has been a key ingredient in the recipe for a successful project and business. If you're struggling with projects, sign up for Basecamp. Their pricing is simple and they give you all their features in a single plan. No upsells, no upgrades. Go to Basecamp.com slash Agile, that's Basecamp.com slash A-G-I-L-E, and try Basecamp for free. No credit card required and cancel anytime. Thank you, Basecamp, for sponsoring this episode. Now let's get back to the show. Kind of add to that, and I think you've you've touched on some of this already. But the the report mentions fifty uh, percent or fifty seven percent of C level marketers say that in order to to accomplish these things, they're going to need to learn new systems and software in order to embrace this post cookie world. From that marketing technology standpoint, um, you know, definitely, you know, you mentioned the CDP, you mentioned a few other things, but, you know, what what are the key components of a strong first party data strategy that marketers need to get right? Well, I, you know, I'll say that the thing that I wouldn't have projected a decade ago that I have to have like a horse in the race of yeah. as, as, a, as a business leader, as a marketer now is like the investment that I'm making inside of my cloud data warehouse. Like I I didn't care a few years ago where my data was stored. I now need to care if it's sitting in an S4 blob in AWS. I need to care if it's sitting in BigQuery. 
I need to care if it's sitting in Azure. And the reason that I have to care as a marketer, as a business leader, is because that's where I'm going to get access to it. Yeah. I also need to care where I'm going to be doing my modeling, right? where if my data science team sits inside of marketing, or my data science team sits somewhere else, or I'm getting those services from a third party. So I need to understand if I'm going to be using additional tools like Databricks, if I'm going to be using Snowflake, um, if I'm going to be augmenting the data that sits inside that cloud data, uh, cloud data warehouse with information from elsewhere. I need to understand that infrastructure in a way that I just hadn't had to have had an, 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 a, a care to understand. Yeah. So it, it really is this kind of ecosystem around those three capabilities that technologies exist in that we now have to, as business leaders and marketers, really have an invested interest in. And, and honestly, it, it asks us to be very thoughtful about our relationship with the CIO or the CSIO yeah. or you know, different size organizations. It's your data managers or your IT departments. Now, but we are, I think, the team that's obligated to as the marketers, as the business leads, reach across the aisles and pull together the business decisions with those teams, not vice versa. And I think yeah. that oftentimes is the way that marketers kind of looked to the other teams to respond to them. Hey, I'm doing something. You go do your evaluation and then come tell me at the end. And instead it's a, okay, I understand that we're trying to build as an organization, this infrastructure around first party data because it's gonna give us a competitive advantage over time. It's gonna help me as a marketer be able to drive better you know, ROI on my advertising spend. So I am going to reach across the table and make sure that I understand where our investments are going in our cloud data warehouse. I am going to reach across the table and make sure I understand if we're investing in Databricks. I'm going to make sure I understand you know, where we're going to be doing our, our business modeling. Yet. Yeah, um, it's, it's a very different perspective you have to take as a marketing leader now than five or six years ago. And I expect that we'll continue to advance that way over the course of the next decade because first-party data is going to be integral in our operations as a business. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think what you're touching on too is, you know, it's, it's the, some people call it the, the three-legged stool. It's, you know, people process platform. And I think, you know, people get really stuck on platform is, is vital as you've, as you've already mentioned, but you know, what can make or break the uh, platform being successful is the people in the process part as well. And so, you know, much to your point, yeah building those bridges with those other teams, even understanding where those other teams sit in relationship to ownership of, you know, of, of data or sources of data and all of that stuff. So, so critical, critical, completely agree. Yeah. 100%. It's, a, it's just such a different mindset that we have to have. And there, you know, I think there's been this promise that marketers are becoming more and more technical. And, you know, I think when you look into the organizations in marketing, many, operational marketers, individual contributors, even team leads and departments like marketing operations are much more technical. Like the lean in here that I want our listeners to take away from today's discussion is that the executives, the, you know, the department leaders across the board, not just the operations leaders, we are also being asked to become much more conversant in the infrastructure that we're investing in. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. So we've been talking quite a bit about how this looks from the inside of an organization. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about what what all this means from the customer's perspective. So, you know, co consumer data privacy concerns are very real, and there's a lot of um, regulations, legislation, all of that behind that as well. And you know, move to a first party data approach provides a lot more security for customers. But 
at the same time, it's also true that customers really like personalization and, and personalized experiences. They buy more, they buy more often, and they they brands are able to achieve greater customer customer lifetime value when they, when they do this well. So question for you is, you know, can customers have the best of both worlds? Can they have more control over data and great personalized experiences? Yeah, well, they can and they should. Yeah. Right there. Uh, so I was the chief marketing officer at the Mozilla Corporation that builds Firefox for about about a half a decade before I joined Lytics, and we spent quite a bit of time doing research around the performance of businesses that operated ethically, um, and what, you know, oh, very, very, very truncate some research that we did, or truncate kind of very briefly some research that we did. And I'm going to use this just to make a point uh, around, I think, an obligation businesses have. And and uh, I think at the same time, try and make a point that like, really customers should have the best of both worlds, should have. Yeah. And and I don't think that we do yet, but, but we should have. So so when uh, we did quite a bit of research in Mozilla around like what what gives a business kind of the justification to operate ethically. And when I say operate ethically, I mean to be able to present to consumers access to a great experience and at the same time, take good care of their customer data. And, and what we found is pretty fascinating. So there, there are a bunch of lists that are out there. Forbes publishes like the top 100 most trusted companies in the world lists yearly. There are a handful of the lists that look like that as well. And, and what we found is we took a look at these kind of top 100 lists over the course of about a decade, half a decade, is that those companies, when you track them next to some of the financial indices like the S&P 500, actually performed as well, if not better than the S&P 500. And the, the only point that I'm trying to make here is that when you really start to look at companies that individual consumers consider to be highly trusted, e.g., they pay close attention to the products that they produce ethically, they present consumer experiences that consumers consider ethical, the brands are considered ethical, they actually perform financially well. So there, there sometimes is a misnomer that if you try and operate ethically, that you can't perform financially well. And stock price isn't necessarily the greatest indicator of business performance, but sometimes it's a good proxy. So, yeah. so we found this pretty fascinating correlation between highly trusted companies and business performance. Yeah. yeah. But on, on the on the flip side, you know, as a consumer, what we oftentimes find is that when we're trying to get access into more and more information about a product or about a service, businesses don't really treat us like humans consistently. You know, there, there's this experience that we get, let's say that, you know, you or I are trying to you know, uh, get an, uh, an update to our iPhone. I don't know if you use an iPhone. I use an iPhone. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and you know, 16.2.2, I think, is the most update, a recent update. And um, I think I got an update for 16.1, like a week and a half or two weeks ago. And the thing that happens to me is that I, I get this update. It says you know, the red dot shows up and I show up in the update sections of the software and I click that I want to accept that I want to update it. And then I get this pop-up box. And the pop-up box has some content in it. And as I start to scroll down this content, what I start to recognize is that this company, Apple, who I generally like the products for, by the way, don't show up on these 100 most trusted companies list, which is fascinating. Right. Um, you know, the, I, I scroll down this list and I start to think that hmm, this company, Apple, is presenting me with what is probably going to be an upgrade to the product experience that I have. However, they're not really treating me like a human. They're treating me like 
a robot because yeah. they expect that I have the stamina to be able to read over you know, 50 pages of uh, right. content. And it's not really just a robot, but they're treating me like a robot lawyer who you know has not just the stamina to be able to read all of the stuff, but be able to at the same time interpret all of the legalese they're putting in front of me. So, so yeah. as a consumer, like one, I should expect that companies are going to operate ethically, take care of my data, present me with a great experience. And two, they should be able to present me with information in a way that I should be able to understand kind of colloquial language to me. Yeah. And I think this is kind of the, the this is the catch point too that a lot of businesses are stuck in that I, I hope to see us work out of. And that's where first party data and personalization plays such a significant role moving forward, Greg, or at least I think it can. You know, we as businesses can make the decision to say, if you're interested in the thing that I have, I'm going to provide you with equal value and what I'm giving to you. And in return, I'm going to ask you for something. I'm going to ask you for your name. I'm going to ask you for your email address. I'm going to ask you for your location. But I'm sure it's not going to give you something of equal value. Yeah. And, I, and I'm going to tell you exactly what that exchange is. And as long as we're transparent about it, what I've seen, at least in my experience working for organizations like Mozilla, is that when you're transparent and you speak in a colloquial language about what the exchange is going to be, consumers will raise their hand and say, yeah, I'm willing to do it. So I, I am a hopeful person. I, I believe that this is a path that we can all go on, but we certainly have some dynamics in the marketplace that have stopped that from happening consistently. Yeah, yeah, agreed. So in, in your role and, and in your, your experience as well, you have a great view of not only what's been leading up to the shift, but what might lie ahead. And, you know, so let's, let's talk a little bit about that. And, you know, do you think that the move beyond third-party cookies is going to improve the customer experience in the long run? And, you know, if so, what are, what are some of the opportunities that this opens up to both consumers as well as the brands they support? Yeah, I, I mean, fundamentally, the third-party cookie uh, was never really intended to be used in the way that it ended up being used. And it ended up creating a lot of malicious uh, kind of consumer experiences like the pop-ups and the pop-unders yeah. and the you know infamous retargeting that showed up all over the place on the internet. So like unequivocally, in my opinion, like we are going to as consumers that spend time on the internet, which we all do, uh, we are going to benefit from the third-party cookie going away. Like we will. Yeah, um, yeah. And what we are going to benefit from is that we will know when we interact with the business that the experience that we're getting with that business is going to be directed by that business. And that means that the, each business is going to have to represent that even if they're working with vendors, that the experience they're putting forward is on behalf of that business. And I think that's what's so important, right? You, you can't just slap a bunch of technologies onto your website and say like, oh, Sorry, well, one of these technologies went rampant, um, yeah. and you know it's their it's their cookies. I'm not really responsible for it. it you you, right. you are because you navigated my website. <laughs> so this idea of being kind of responsible for, culpable for the uh, interactions that take place uh, on your experiences uh, for your consumers, for your customers, for the people that interact with you, I think is a huge benefit for consumers over time. And I, I'm a huge consumer advocate in that in that regard. It's part part of my takeaway from my time at Mozilla. Um, so I, yeah. I only see things getting better for consumers. And that's because of, you know, really the changes that have been coming on because of government regulations like that, that we've seen 
you know, they take years and years and years to get to a point where we are today, where they're starting to be enacted. And on top of that, we see nation state sized companies like, you know, Google and Microsoft and Mozilla and, and Apple starting to make changes that are also benefiting consumers and benefiting themselves as well. And, you know, consumers are going to play a role in that mix as well. Consumers are going to vote with their, their feet and their eyeballs and they're going to make decisions also. So, like at the end of the day, like I want consumers to win. I mean, consumers deserve great experiences. You and I deserve great experience. All the listeners today deserve great experiences. And and a first step in doing that is making sure that every person, every business that we interact with online is that person or is that business. Yeah, yeah, definitely agree. Well, um, Yasha, thanks so much for joining. Uh, one one last question before we wrap up, though. Uh, what's a one piece of advice you would have for brands that, you know, maybe they're feeling like they need to catch up a little bit to the competition with their first party data strategy. Uh, what, what do you recommend in the in the months ahead? Look, I, I don't want to cheat on this answer, Greg, but I, I, I mean this incredibly sincerely. The CDP landscape is, is built, like ready built to be able to support that kind of catch up mode. Yeah. You know, there, there's kind of the spectrum of readiness. Like I haven't started but I know it's important and I need to get going. And I've been working on my infrastructure, my capabilities, and I need to take it to the next level or I need to improve one set of capabilities. You know, your, your kind of most important step if you're in catch-up mode is to assess the capabilities that exist in your organization. Because even if you believe you're in catch-up mode, you probably are doing one of those three things that we talked about earlier somewhat better than the others. Yeah. I'm collecting data. I have a location to store it. I have the ability to take action on and and then really the the right next bit is probably take a look in the CDP category and identify an ability to augment those capabilities with you. And you know you'll you'll find all kinds of different options in the CDP category to be able to match the capabilities for you. What I will say is that never accept any CDP that tells you that you have to accept their monolithic you know option to buy everything that they offer to be able to solve all your problems. Like what you should really be looking at is this concept called composability. So this idea of kind of building the thing that makes sense for your infrastructure, for your capabilities, for your readiness. And, you know, that's, that's really my advice. It's accept that if you're playing cash up, that you probably have some capabilities and use the idea of composability in the CDP space to build around those capabilities, not believe that you've got to have some one monolithic solution that's going to solve everything for you all at one time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're, I'll have to have you back on the show to talk about composability too, because definitely that's a that's a top of mind um, topic as well. Well, again, I'd like to thank Yasha Kakis Wolf, uh, president at Lytics, for joining the show. Uh, you can learn more about Yasha and Lytics by following the links in the show notes, including a link to the report titled "Life After the Third Party Cookie." Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening to the Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom podcast brought to you by Tech Systems. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe on your podcast channel of choice and leave us a rating so that others can find the show more easily. You can access more episodes of the show at www.gregkilstrom.com. That's G-R-E-G-K-I-H-L-S-T-R-O-M.com. To get a copy of my latest book, House of the Customer, visit my website or you can find it on Amazon or other retailers. The Agile brand is produced by Missing Link, a Latina-owned, strategy-driven, creatively-fueled production co-op. From ideation to creation, they craft human connections through intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Until next time, stay agile.